So if you're visiting today, let's explain what. Uh, <laughs> every Sunday isn't like this, but it is kickoff Sunday, and, uh, and we want to have some fun, and we also want to tie that in. So that was Diana. So let me show you what happens. See, if you participate, you know, the scriptures say that you should participate in the building of the kingdom here on earth while you're on earth because you'll be rewarded in the kingdom to come. But since you pushed the button in this kingdom, I'm going to reward you in this kingdom with a little gift card. So see, she's going to reap. She's going to reap. Come on up and get it. And you should all be thankful because we would have sat here until somebody else had the guts to get up and push the button. If um, you're like me, I grew up, um, you know, just going to church. That was kind of the thought process. At one time, you know, participating in church seemed uncomfortable and definitively unnecessary, right? For many of us, that's the way we grew up. And if you're like me, um, going to church for a lot of my life was something that you went to. It wasn't actually a place that you are, right? The scriptures ask this question. Do you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And my answer was no, I didn't for most of my life know that. I thought you just went to church and God was pleased if you went to church. Like that would impress him, right? So then it, it, it started to, to, to resonate with me, right? I didn't understand that when I went to church, I felt the presence of God there. It was because I thought he lived there. But I didn't realize that where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. It's not that God resided in the building, but that God resided in the people that were in the building. And I think we get that confused sometimes, right? And then I remember the church I grew up in was more of a traditional church, and the guy up front had a robe on. And I thought that I was going to watch that guy up front do his work, do his job. Not understanding that his job, according to the scriptures, was to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ would be built up. The church wasn't his work. It was my work. It was our shared work. The participation, that, that participation in church were as intertwined as like living and breathing. And that work, or maybe a better word, that way, that's really what the church was known as over the first many years of its existence. The way is what I want to talk to you about today because I need to be reminded on a regular basis of what it is I'm doing here and why I'm doing it. And since you're a human being, I think that you need to be too. I'm guessing you do. And that's what we like to do on kickoff Sundays. I mean, let's be honest, okay? You guys have busy lives. Most of us only get one day a week or two at most to sleep in. And when you, when you become part of the way, the way asks you to give up one of the, those days. I mean, that's serious, right? I mean, the, the way it asks for your time and your money and your resources and your devotion. And I think every once in a while, somebody needs to remind us of why we're doing this. Why do it? Why get up? Why give? Why work? Why care? In a world where I could just stay home and watch Joel Osteen, right? Why? Would I get up and come to church? That's what kickoff Sunday is all about. Here's a question that I, it's really rhetorical. Have you ever lost something of, of value? Right? I mean, we've all had that where you lose something and you're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. This summer, I had them for years now, a couple of years ago, maybe four years ago, my kids bought me a pair of Ray, Ray-Ban sunglasses. 
And I treasured these sunglasses because I'm, I'm too cheap to buy nice sunglasses. You know why I won't buy myself nice sunglasses? Because I lose them, <laughs> right? And so I never buy myself nice sunglasses. So my kids bought me these nice sunglasses. And, you know, I, it's always a little weird when a pastor is walking around in expensive sunglasses, but I would always tell people my kids bought them. And then this summer during our baptism celebration, I was getting changed and I lost my Ray-Ban sunglasses at the lake this summer. If I see one of you people walking around later with a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses on, we're all going to know where they came from. And so I'm kind of used to losing things of value, and it bothers me. So this year, our phones were, um, Betsy, hand me my phone. Our, our phones were uh, due for updates, and so they gave us all free, free new phones. And um, I like to have a wallet on the back of my phone. And you can buy really cheap wallets to just stick on your phone. But I discovered that Apple has come out with this new technology called MagSafe. Are you aware of this? Right? Like, I'm not really that techie. But I'm like, this is really cool. And so you can get a wallet, right, that holds your credit cards, which are of some value, and it sticks right here. Now, you can get a lot of wallets that do it. But if you buy the Apple wallet that does it, at twice the price of all of the other wallets, when this wallet falls off, after it's gone for about a minute, my phone buzzes me and tells me, you left your wallet wherever. I paid a lot of money because of my ability to lose valuable things. So I'm walking around with a ridiculously overpriced, you know, two by one piece of leather on my phone because I didn't want to lose my credit cards. I've lost things more valuable than that. I'm sure you probably have too. A few years ago, probably a little more than that now, my brothers and sisters and, and I were on a family vacation with my dad, and we were in Ocean City, Maryland. We're, if you know me, that's no surprise. And we were out in the bay, and my brother wanted to take us water skiing. He was the only one that had ever water skied. None of us had ever water skied. And it was a choppy day on the bay, kind of a, kind of a rough day. Storm apparently was coming in. And so we get there to rent the boat to go water skiing. It's me, my two brothers, and my dad. And the guy goes, hey, it's a little rough out there. Do you guys know what you're doing? And if you're an Eisman man, the answer is, do I know what I'm doing? Of course I know what I'm doing. Now, none of us had ever driven a boat before, um, but that didn't prevent us from deciding on a choppy, rough day to go out on the bay, right? And so we're out there trying to, trying to get up on the water skis, and I try it, and I can't get up, and my brother Matt tries it, and he can't get up. My brother Glenn, who was the, the water skier, he had done this many times, it was so rough that my brother Glenn couldn't get up on the water skis. So the only, th the only you know, rightful thing to do as an Eisman man is to peer pressure the least likely person to be able to get up on his skis into getting in the water and trying it. And that was my father. So we just kept badgering him until he got in the water to try to water ski. Now my dad is 6'5", about 225. He's a big guy, right? And he's in there, and he's trying to put the water skis on in the water, which is, I understand it, which is what you want to do, right? You don't get in in the water skis which would have been a better idea that day. Well, he can't get the water skis on at all, right? And so after a few minutes, he decides, I give up, come bring the boat around and get me. I go to turn the boat on, boat doesn't turn on, right? Keep trying to turn the boat on, boat won't turn on. So I'm going, well, there's gotta be a paddle in this boat somewhere, right? So I start looking around, there's one paddle, <laughs> which is great if you want to circle, but it's not really great for going to get someone. So we're yelling at my dad, hey, we're working on this, stay calm, right? And uh, he's, now my dad, 
I'm going to swim back to the boat. He won't swim back to the boat because he's holding the, the skis, which he had put a deposit on, and he was too cheap, like me, to lose the skis. So he wouldn't let them go and swim back. We're trying to wave to boats to come help us. They're waving back. <laughs> My one brother is going, I'm going to jump in and save them. I'm like, we don't have any, we had one life preserver, and he has it. We're like, you can't jump in. Well, to make a long story short, no exaggeration, my father drifted over the horizon, <laughs> gone, right, out in the bay, until um, eventually we got a boat that would come and went out and bought my dad back. And that was probably the scariest thing I had lost for a certain amount of time. <laughs> it, until one time I went shopping with Courtney when she was little. And we, Joan and I were shopping, I mean, one of the anchor stores in the mall, and if you ever have a little kid, you know, most of us have had this moment of sheer terror at one point where you turn around and the kid is just not there. And, you know, you just feel, I mean, every newspaper article you've ever read, like everything, you know, you're looking around, running around, and we can't find her anywhere. Make a long story short, we finally, as we're walking around, you know they have those, um, those racks, where like circular racks where the clothes are all hanging on them? We look in and we see two legs like sitting in there because she thought it was hilarious that she was hiding in the clothes and we couldn't find her. So I know what it's like to lose something valuable. I have felt those feelings as my dad drifted off to sea. <laughs> True story. Now why do I tell you that? Well, because it... it, it resonates so deeply in my soul in regards to a story that I, I heard about 17 or 18 years ago. The staff and, and the elders and I, I was just a volunteer at the time, we went to a training session together. It was, it was out of state, we flew there. I was still in my finance career, so I took some time, some vacation time to attend it. And the teacher at this conference, he got up and he introduced me to a chapter in the Bible. More importantly, he introduced me to the God of the Bible and a call on, on my life that I didn't know existed. That sermon, that chapter, that God he showed me, which I never really understood until that morning, is why I eventually quit my job and started serving here at Mendham full-time. If you've been around long enough, you know the chapter. I go back to it often. It's from the book of Luke. If, if you're kind of new to the Christian faith, Luke wasn't a disciple of Jesus. He was a first century doctor that turned first-rate uh, historian. And he wrote out this really researched, highly detailed accounting of the life of Jesus. And it's Luke who writes down one of the most famous interactions in all of history. Even if you've never read anything in the Bible, you're aware of some of this interaction. Tim Keller said of this chapter, if all of the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, this story would be one of the clearest spots where you can see all the way to the bottom. So I want to take you there with me and tell you what he showed me that day, and I want to show you it today. Again, I'm going to read from, uh, from Luke 15, but I'm going to do something I usually don't. Instead of just going line by line, I'm going to read the story, and then together we're going to go back and, and look at it a little bit together. So let me read most of this chapter out loud to you. Luke writes that, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, which they're always muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus hears this. Often the scriptures tell us that he knew their hearts. Luke writes, Jesus then, upon hearing it, told them this parable. 
Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country? We sing about this song, right? We sing this, right? This is where that song comes from. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Hmm. He goes on, right in a row, boom, boom. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and, and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I'm telling you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs, about the worst thing that could happen to a, a Jewish boy. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, Jesus said, or uh, um, he... When he came to his senses, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, the son goes into his plan. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father had wanted nothing to do with it. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So, sometimes you guys will say, you know, I, on a teaching on a Sunday, you'll, you'll say, you know, I, how did you get that out of that? I would have never gotten what you just talked on out of that, that um, piece of scripture. And so what I want to do with you today is that I want you to work through this scripture with me. You know these stories but I want you to work through intellectually and emotionally these, these stories. So, so let's do what I try to do with the scriptures, right? So let's begin with some observations. Here's the first one. It's a parable, right? So that's what you do with an a parable. You start to kind of try to understand what Jesus is doing. The first thing I want you to think about is, to whom is Jesus speaking? Who is the audience, right? Who did, did he determine needed to hear this story? The answer is, if you remember it, Two kinds of people. Did you catch that when it started? Luke makes sure you understand. He's telling these stories to two different kinds of people. 
It's in the opening line. Luke writes, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law gathered around him to mutter. So he starts with one audience is this, tax collectors and sinners, which is always funny to me because being identified as a sinner was not bad enough, right? Like it was, it was, tax, it was sinners, but then tax collectors, they have their own level. They're like a lower level of sinners. They're like the worst kind. Why? Because they were traitors to their own people. They were working with the Roman occupiers to essentially steal from Israeli citizens. They were worse than sinners. They were traitors to their country, and they're working against the God of Israel. Then, so you have, that's one group, right? The worst of the worst. Then you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Well, these are the best of the best. These are the ultra-religious people. They're, they're, they're the professionally righteous. They were known, the Pharisees, for their strict adherence to the laws that God had laid out in the Old Testament. And Luke says that all of these professionally righteous religious folks were muttering to themselves about Jesus hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors. Why? Because a rabbi doesn't eat with sinners. Not only was it against the rabbinical law for Jesus to be eating them, it would make him ceremonially unclean, right? In that world, it wasn't a world of you are what you eat. In that world, it was you are who you eat with. And so Jesus is like defiling himself. He's, he's associating himself in the eyes of, of the good people with the bad people. He's associating himself with them. Which, by the way, every time you look at the cross, that's a good way to look at the cross. He's associating with us. So to the religious guys, this was intolerable, right? It's deplorable. And yet Jesus just did it over and over again, and thus the muttering, the constant muttering. And that's the audience. Luke wants you to know that's why Jesus is telling this story, because there's two kinds of people there that needed to hear it, the sinners and the self-righteous. And then he tells three quick stories, boom, 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 right in succession. Now, I don't know if you noticed it when we went through it. I've taught through this before because it's so important. There are, these stories all have very common elements in each one. So if you're sitting around and you're studying the scriptures, you look at it and you go, okay, let's, let's look at each one of these and try to figure out why he would tell these same stories over and over again, right? The first commonality, that, the first thing that they have in common is that in each story, something gets lost, Right? The first story is about a sheep, and one of, there's a hundred sheep, and one of the hundred is gone missing. There's now 99 and one gone. Now, here's the thing about sheep. In, in their agrarian economy, they under, understood this. Most of us don't. Our experience of sheep is limited to going to all steeds for the most part, right, and throwing them some corn. We don't, we don't understand sheep all that much. But what they understood that we need to understand is that sheep are notoriously stupid animals which is kind of troubling because Jesus calls himself the shepherd and us sheep, <laughs> right? So you're starting to get this. Um, and so, so sheep are notoriously stupid, famously dumb. And one of the things, the, the reasons that they are is they're driven by, and now you'll understand why Jesus calls us sheep. They're driven by internal cravings, right? Like they, they follow instinct. I have a dog named Moose. We gave Moose a bone recently. Now, this, is, this, is, this dog has grown up in my house since he was 10 weeks old, right? But the instinct is so deep in this dopey dog. He tries to bury the bone in the couch 
all the time. Thank, this is why we, buy, we have leather couches, because the dogs destroy them. This dog tried so hard the last time we gave it a bone to bury the, the bone in the, in, the, in the sofa. He scraped his nose completely raw. The house, there was blood everywhere. Because the dog was following its instinct trying to bury a bone in a couch. Sheep are stupider than moose. Right? And I can prove it to you. Sometimes a picture say a thousand words. This is what sheep will do, following their instinct, right? Here's this poor guy. Keep going, Dina. Look at this one. Right? We got another one or two in here. How about that? Right? How about that? See, what happens is they can see, they'll see some green somewhere. And sheep just start well, they're hungry, and they go for the green. They, you know, there's not any thought process to the ramifications of what might happen if I do this. It's just that they're following their instinct. And so if you Google um, sheep or, or, or sheep lost sheep, what you'll find is story after story about rescuers. This is a modern-day story. Go home and Google it. Rescuers of modern-day sheep. It's a little blurry, but here's two guys that got themselves up on a cliff. They can't get down. They're just stuck. And so literally, some rescuers have to go, throw these sheep over their shoulders, they're all tied up the lines because they're hanging on the edge of a cliff, and bring these sheep down. It's a common, common story. Now, in the second story, you've got, you've got 100 sheep and one goes missing. In the second story, you move down from 100 sheep down to 10 coins. And so this is like moving from me missing my credit card, right, which, you know, I hate to lose my credit card, to my father sailing off over the horizon, right? Suddenly this is sharpening, and Jesus is trying to go, do you see this is more valuable, right? This is 10% of the woman's estate. In the first century, it wasn't easy for a woman to just go back out into the workforce and, and make it up. This was likely all she was going to get. There was no way to replace it. If the sheep was a valuable part of the shepherd's livelihood, how much more so was this one of ten coins for this woman? And then, of course, Jesus tells the famous story of a father who had only two sons. So you went from a hundred to ten to now just two. This summer, I, I read the book. Um, I was sharing, talking to, to some friends about it this week. I read a book on the beach. It wasn't really a beach read. It was called Lament for a Son. My daughter Caroline had recommended it from a class at college. It's, the, it's a chronicle of Nicholas Wolster, I want to get his name right, Wolsterstorff's journey through the loss of his 25-year-old son Eric in a mountain climbing accident. It was a beautifully poignant collection of his essays and his, his feelings and wrestling with losing his son. And I, I just sat on the beach this summer reading it, and I couldn't help but imagine, I mean, I started to tear up as I was reading about this dad, about his love for his lost son, and I, I started thinking about the prodigal son. We read that story, but we don't feel it, right? This dad lost one of his two sons. If you've ever lost a child to death or or to the wiles and schemes and the brokenness of this world, you know what that feels like. So what's Jesus' point? One commonality is something gets lost. It's simply this, and I remember hearing this at the conference. It was so poignant. When people are separated from God by sin, by their brokenness, by their rebellion, God feels the loss. And is, God feels it like the guy who wrote Lament for His Son. He feels it. It doesn't matter how far off you are. 
doesn't matter how far away you are, God's going to every human being that's ever lived. You still matter to me. You really, really matter to me. And it doesn't matter why. This is a new observation I, I discovered this week. I mean, you stare at this story long enough, man. You'll see, keep seeing new things. Think about the sheep, right? The sheep are separated from the shepherd because of their instinct, because of the way they were born, their natural inclinations, what flowed out of them, what their mother and father had taught them to do. They're just not all that bright. They don't consider the cost. And, and so the sheep are lost because they're foolish. How about the coin? Why is the coin lost? I mean, I mean, the coin is an inanimate object, right? The coin didn't make any choices. It, it just found itself in this situation. In fact, it was probably somebody else who got the coin lost. The coin isn't lost because it's foolish. The coin is lost because it's thoughtless, either itself or it was lost by the thoughtless actions of others. How about the son? Why is the son lost? The son's lost because of his own willful choices. Even in the face of knowing what's right, he brazenly chooses the offensive and wrong. And yet, Jesus does not differentiate the father's feelings over any of them. All of them are the same. They are all valuable to God. If you walked away on purpose or if it was accidental. And the line I always remember from the talk all these years ago was this. He, the, the guy looked and he goes, you have never in your life run across, met eyes, locked eyes with a human being that isn't valuable to God. Never. Every human being you've ever met, everyone that frustrated you, that doesn't act or live like you, every single one of them, that's the way God feels about them. Now, the second thing that each of these stories has in common is that the thing that is missing is of such high value that in each story, it's worthy of an all-out, no-cost-is-too-great search. I went back that day and looked for my Ray-Bans at the beach. I know one of you has them. I couldn't find them anywhere, right? I mean, think about it. To, to, my brother was going to jump off of the boat to go, I don't know how he thought he was going to save my father, but he was going to go because my father was worthy of jumping off the boat and, and going to save. To that shepherd, that one sheep, even though he's got 99, you have to understand this, he's got 99. But that one sheep is so valuable, it's so important that he's willing to leave the 99 to go get the one. I mean, think about the story, right? He could have called for the sheep. Come here, you stupid sheep. Right? He could have gone out and left trail markers and left sheep food all the way back. But he doesn't do any of those things. At great personal risk to what he already has and to himself, he leaves what he has in order to go out after the one. He goes looking for it. That's how much the one is worth. How about the woman? Jesus says that she loses this coin. And so she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, and she searches carefully until she finds it. See, we read that like she just kind of sat down on the couch and ran her hand through the cracks, you know? In our house, we get moose hair when we do that. Maybe she was, you know, we think she just kind of, oh, I found it. But that's not what the scriptures indicate. She searched carefully. She had a plan. She didn't wait till morning. Did you catch that? She lights a lamp. 
I got to find it now. There's an urgency to the search. She could have waited to the morning, but it was too valuable. And she searched carefully. She searched and searched room by room by room until she found it. She didn't give up initially when it was hard. Ah, look, I'll be honest. I looked for the Ray-Bans for like 15 minutes and I went home. She searched and she searched and she searched and she wasn't going to stop until she found the coin. That's how valuable it was. And then you have the, the, the father whose son left of his own choice, his own volition. And the father allows him to go. But you can just imagine him scanning the horizon day after day, just waiting for that wayward son to come to his senses and reappear. And when he does, what does the father do? What's his reaction and his response? He hikes up his robe, and contrary to every socially acceptable custom, he runs and embarrasses himself to meet the son. What's Jesus' point? God values people so much that he searches for those who are lost and separating them. See, before I really, I understood this story in new ways that one day. Here's what I thought was true about God. I assumed my relationship with God was like this. I've sinned and separated myself from God, and so I need to do something to get back in his good graces. I'm searching for God, was what I thought. I'm trying to figure out my way home. The scriptures don't indicate that at all. What the scriptures indicate is God has been looking for me, carefully, diligently, at great cost, searching and searching, never giving up. I thought he was far off and I had to do something to get to him, but that's not what God is. I didn't find God. Let me repeat that. I didn't find God. The sheep and the coin, they're incapable of finding their way from being lost, right? They couldn't find their way back. In fact, the son realizes there's no way back. He just wants to be a servant. It's the father. It's always the father. I'll give you one other thing the three stories have in common. This is super interesting, right? If you think about it, in the, in the story of the sheep and the coin and the son, in each of those stories, none of those things, this is so interesting. I'm telling you, you can sit there and study this. You could spend a year on this. You look at each of those things, the sheep, the son, and the coin, none of those things think they're lost. They don't even realize it. They think they're fine. I mean, the coin doesn't think he's oblivious, but right? The sheep is just out going to get something to eat. The son, in fact, enjoys his current situation for a long time. That's why you, you can't find your way home it, if you're not aware that you're even lost, right? So they couldn't find their way home because they didn't even know they were lost. This is why when somebody asked Jesus why he came, he kept it pretty simple. Luke wrote it down. For the Son of Man came, why? To seek and save the lost. It's literally his mission. John, this beloved disciple who heard this firsthand, put it this way. He heard Jesus say this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Sometimes we think that's our mission, right? We get our heads a little screwed up. We think our, world is to, our mission is to make sure everybody understands how bad they are. But that wasn't Jesus's, so I'm not sure why we took it on as ours. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
And then finally, and just as importantly, here's another thing the stories have in common. In each of them, once the thing that has been lost, and I think this is the most interesting thing, we run by it all the time. Each time one of the things, those things that have been lost have been found, the person who loved them, who searched for them, they throw wild parties and celebrate in each story. Not just in the prodigal son story. I know you know about the fattened calf, but in each of the stories, it's one of the three common elements in each of them. The shepherd finds the sheep. What's he do? He calls all his friends together and he has a party. The woman finds the coin. What does she do? She finds, calls all her friends together and they have a party. And the father, of course, famously throws this grand party for his son. What is Jesus' point? Well, he kind of said it. He said, I'm telling you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to. Jesus is saying, for those of us that care, if you want to make the heavens rejoice, it happens every time one single sinner, one single person far from God is found and is brought home. Many of you know my, my story. My brother-in-law explained the gospel to me at the, the Roxbury Diner on Route 10. I just drove by it yesterday, and I looked in the window for the booth that I was sitting in in the 80s. And he explained a great personal risk to him. I could have blown him off and made him look stupid. But he explained the gospel to me in that diner, and I felt a click in my head. I got it. See, that night... What the scriptures say is, this is hard for me to believe, okay? But what the scriptures say is, I'm so valuable, the heavens erupted in a party. A giant banner got dropped down in the kingdom of God that said, welcome home, John Henry Eisman Jr. That's nuts. My name was added to the invitation for the greatest party that's ever going to be had, the wedding feast of the Lamb. But, but see, guys, the celebration, I mean, that's not just my story. It's been repeated time and time again, you know, for Betsy and for Dave and for Barry. Every time, every time, the kingdom of heaven rejoices over one single person. And if you haven't come to, to understand that God is, Jesus is who he said he is, and that God longs for you, you're never going to find him. He's searching for you. And then if you will just trust him with your life and give yourself over to him. I mean, the angelic choir is standing by. His greatest desire is for you to come home. That's how much he loves you and how much he values you. Those stories are all about you. Don't you see? Well, when I left that conference, I left with a different understanding of the love of God for me. I saw that banner dropped with my name on it, and for others. And I felt a different call on my life to be part of this search and rescue project with God, to give him my best talents and efforts in the best hours of my day. Now, if you've been part of our church, I've been around here a long time, right? About a decade or so, I asked you to join me in that search. And like the woman in the house, I set out a goal. I, I had a plan. I had something in mind. And, and, and if you're here long enough, you know that I took out a map about 10 years ago, and I looked at the populations. I took the 2010 census data, and I looked at the populations of every town that touches Mendham or Chester, because our church is literally on the border. Uh, I'm not dreaming big. One town. 
That means towns that seem really close, like Far Hills, aren't even in the cut, okay? And Far Hills is 10 minutes from here. I just looked at, at every town that touched us, and then I took the, the census data and I added it up, and I went to Barna's statistic, George Bonner is a statistician, a pollster, and I looked at his statistics for, for people that had personal relationships with Christ in the Northeast. And if you've been around here long enough, anybody remember what the number is? 92,962 people lived in 10 years ago within one town of our church that had no kind of personal relationship with Christ. People that God wanted found. So for the last 10 years, you've heard me saying this number over and over and over again. Some of you have told me, please stop saying that. I'm tired of it. I can't stop saying it. Because they're human beings. They're sons and daughters. They matter. How have we done? It's been 10 years. How have we done? Well, can I be honest with you? It's a good news, bad news story. <laughs> Here's the good news. It's always good to start with the good news, right? Together, by inviting people into this community, we have impacted thousands of lives over the last decade. We have baptized hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. New believers in Jesus Christ. Every time, if you've been to our baptism celebrations, every time somebody goes into that lake, the kingdom of heaven erupts and the banners drop. It's amazing. Now, how, how do we measure that? Okay, well, baptism is one way. Church attendance is never a great measure, right? But, but I can give you some interesting comparisons. If you kind of look at the holidays as like when everybody comes to church, right? Church attendance patterns are very strange, but... You know, for most, kind of the most, most, you don't have a ton of visitors anymore on the holidays, but you do get, like, everybody shows up on that one day. In 2012, for Easter, we hosted um, 555 sons and daughters of God. In 2022, 10 years later, we hosted 926. Pretty good. And, and, and again, Christmas in 2012, Christmas, our Christmas Eve services in 2012, we hosted 472 sons and daughters of God. This year, in the middle of COVID, if you remember COVID at Christmas time, um, we hosted, including our, our online numbers, the, these numbers would have been much bigger. In fact, just the reservations alone were bigger than this number. But again, 472 in 2012, 1,060 in 2022. So by most means or measures, you can look at small group involvement, you can look at giving, every one of them is way, 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 way up. And to each one of you who have followed the call of God to seek and save those far from them, you've gone out on a limb, some of you have risked relationships, risked looking foolish and getting up and pushing the button, you've cared enough about your neighbors to share Jesus with them, maybe you've invited them to explore and meet him, meet him here with us, I say way to go. Countless parties have been thrown in heaven over these years because of the efforts of this church. That's the good news. You and I have made a massive difference in these towns. That's true. Now, here's the bad news. I did the math again. I added up all the towns because now the 20, 20 census data is out. So I got new numbers. And, you know, that's kind of my background. I'm a numbers guy, right? And so I, I pulled them all out. I did all the neighborhoods again. And uh, then I went and I looked at the new Barna multiplier. I took kind of the, the average between the Philadelphia area and the New York area. And do you know what the number is today? 96,176. <laughs> 96,176 people live within one town of our church that don't have any kind of personal relationship with Jesus. And as I've shown you, it's not necessarily because we haven't done our job. It's actually attributable to something that's been dubbed the rise of the nuns. 
N-O-N-E-S. A decade ago, when I first did the math on this, these so-called nuns, or as Barna calls them in his work, he calls them the don'ts, meaning when polled, they don't know, they don't care, and they don't believe that God exists. Listen to this stat, so interesting. While one out of 10 U.S. adults qualified for that category in 1991, and in 2001, in 10 years, it was discernibly the same. The segment nudged up just a couple of percentage points by 2011. In the past decade, since I did these numbers, the number of don'ts nationwide has nearly tripled from 12% in 2011 to 34% in 2021. Who's responsible for that rapid, rapid and substantial growth? Anybody have any uh, millennials in their family? <laughs> One of the leading segments is the millennial generation, currently ages eight, three, 18 through 36. The American Worldview Inventory 2021, which is an annual survey of Americans' worldviews conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, reveals 43% of millennials are don'ts. They just don't believe any of it. The highest of any adult generation in the country. So here's what Barna concluded. He said, the United States... You need to hear this. The United States has become one of the largest and most important mission fields in the world. We are faced with a young adult population that is breaking the established patterns. They don't embrace many of the core beliefs and behaviors that characterize those who came before them. This new America we're seeing emerging is radically different. Demographically, politically, relationally, spiritually. It is young, non-white, mobile. The group is largely indifferent to the United States. It's demonstrably skeptical of the nation's history, its foundations, its traditions, its ways of life. They're technologically advanced, sexually unrestrained, emotionally unpredictable, and a spiritual hybrid. Christian ministry as practiced for the last five decades will not be effective with this unique population. That's why, as good a job as you did, the number went up. And yet... Every one of those people is a son and daughter that God wants found, is of such great value that they are worthy of an all-out search, and when they're found, of raucous celebration. Friends, those are your neighbors. Those are our sons and daughters. Those are, and this is, this is important to me now, our grandsons and granddaughters. And today, understanding the heart of God that Jesus revealed in those stories, I'm asking you to once again rejoice or rejoin with Jesus. Partner with our church. Participate. Play your role. Push the button, if you will, on making sure that, that you're all in with us on helping find them. Here's how Barna concluded his survey. Check this out. He said, looking ahead, he said, churches need to, quote, invest most heavily in reaching children and equipping their parents, offer a solid foundation of absolute moral truth, reimagine typical church services and programs, and foster bold and creative leadership. Like never before, I believe we will need to reimagine and increase our efforts to strategically transform this new cultural landscape with biblical truth. Let me give you those four things again, church. Invest most heavily in children. Equip their parents. Offer solid moral truth and reimagine church. Guys, 10 years ago or so, I talked to you about this. In two weeks, I'll be 55 years old. That, you know, I thought you might sing happy birthday or something, but hold that for afterwards. (laughs) It's all right, I I can feel the love. That means in 10 years, I'll be 65. And, you know, that carries with it some amount of, that's towards the end of your career. I want you to know, and I'm committing to you in front of everybody, 
that this is the plan for the next year, over the next 10. We are going to invest heavily in children. We are going to equip their parents. We are going to offer so solid moral truth, and we are going to continue to reimagine what church looks like. And I'm asking you to join me, to double down, to care, to hear the call of Christ First for you and understand how much he loves you. And then for others, for his sons and daughters. And for our sons and daughters that don't look like or think like we do anymore. What can you do? Well, first keep doing what you're doing. Invest in relationships. Meet neighbors. Make friends. Be the light of Christ in your community. And if you believe that what's going on in this community is worthy of inviting them to, if your life has been impacted here and blessed by this church, then trust it enough to invite them into the community. There is hope and healing and love in this place. Everybody's looking for that. And then push the participation button. Understand that participation in a church is like living and breathing. It's that kind of a relationship. You can't have one without the other. And if I'm going to be honest, it, it, the one ministry in our church that suffered the most during the last couple of years, you know what it, what, what it is, which is ironic given what Barna concluded? Kids. It's the one ministry we couldn't keep going during COVID. Adults went online, youth group met outside, you could give online, you could zoom in for prayer, you could spread out for small groups. But for the kids, it was tough. They missed a couple of years. And if we're to believe what the stats show us, it's one of the four places we've got to prioritize. We've got to, as a church, regain our momentum there. This summer, if you were here, what are there, eight or 10 summers, Sundays? I purposely spent two upstairs. Not down here, upstairs with the kids. I'm asking you to join me in that. And Courtney and the dedicated volunteers upstairs and be part of the, the reimagining of what church looks like. Did you know on a busy Sunday there are 100 children upstairs? 100. It's like the size of a small school. And it's all volunteer-led, all of it. All volunteers. Just want to encourage you. If you care, I mean, parents, parents, please hear this. If you have kids upstairs, we need you to join us. And if you don't, I'm telling you right now, the best volunteers we have upstairs don't even have kids. They hear the call of God. Are there other ways? Sure, sure. Get into a community. Go see Janice. She'll get you into a group, right? Uh, you need to get into smaller gatherings. She says it all the time. Rows are great. Circles are better. And we have to be a church where people go, boy, those people seem to love one another and care for one another and share with one another and walk with one another. In order to do that, we have to know one another. Go see Deb. Talk to her about our welcome team. Let's make the church the happiest place on earth, the most welcoming and inviting place on earth. I mean, you could do that. Anybody could do that, right? If you have kids in youth ministry, ask Mike. You know, Mike sat down this week and wrote every kid in his ministry. And I don't know how many that was. It's a lot. A personal postcard inviting them to kick off tonight. Every one of them. Go see Mike and go, man, how do I participate? How do I help? How do I, how do I come alongside you? If you have some music talent, talent, you want to work a camera, talk to Isaac. Help us reach our community online. And of course, we're called to reach the least of these. Beyond the Walls is out in the foyer this morning. We need your help with our golf outing. We need your help feeding and educating the poorest kids on earth. It's all right outside these doors for you. Our church has more than doubled over these last years, but the mission field is bigger than ever. At that conference all those years ago, the speaker ended with, with a challenge that I'll never forget. He looked around, and he, 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 it was like he locked eyes with me, and he, he goes, lost people matter to God. The only question you have to ask yourself is, do they matter to you? 
That's my challenge for you this kickoff Sunday. And when we get it right, when we get it right, the banners drop, the angels sing, and it looks a little bit like this.